It's time for Radio Cows, a weekly program from the Central Arkansas Library System. Every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. here on KABF 88.3 FM, we will share music from our archives, content from our resources, such as the Encyclopedia of Arkansas, and information about what's happening in the library system. We invite you to let us know what else you want to hear by contacting us at radiocows at cows.org. This program is presented by the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies and the Cows Community Outreach Department. For more information about Radio Cows, including links to resources mentioned in our segments, please visit the Butler Center's blog at butlercenter.org. Radio Cows and Cows now have a feature called Primary Sources. It focuses on people who are making a difference in Little Rock and Arkansas. Some you might have heard of and some you haven't heard of but probably want to know about. In addition to what you can hear on Radio Cows, check out cows.org slash podcasts for a free podcast of Primary Sources interviews. This week's podcast features Judge Ollie Neal Jr., a native of Mariana and retired Court of Appeals Justice. Raymond Abramson of Holly Grove, a current justice on the Court of Appeals, interviewed Judge Neal in the fall of 2016 for primary sources. Did you end up going to Vietnam? I did. I went to Vietnam. What was your experience like there? That was, I went to Vietnam in August of 65 uh, after going out to Fort Lewis, Washington for some AIT, Advanced Infantry Training. Went to Vietnam in uh, August of uh, 65, and uh, when I got over there, there were only about 30 to 50,000 troops over there. But as soon as I got there, they started bringing in. I was in a quartermaster outfit supporting uh, the uh, infantry troops on the ground. And uh, they started bringing, they brought in a couple of companies. They brought in the 4th Division, which is a pretty large set of men. They brought in the 1st uh, Division out of Fort Riley, Kansas. And they brought in the 1st Air Cavalry, which was the boys jumping out of the helicopters. Uh, uh, and uh, that was an interesting experience. I'd, I was not in that battle zone per se, but Vietnam was an interesting, it was the first war we'd had where there was no true front. That is, everywhere was a front. And my most serious experience was in was around Christmas of 1965. The uh, the Christmas day we had a little drinking going on and I uh, couldn't manage my stuff pretty good so I had two three bottles two three fifths of whiskey in my, in my tent but I quit about uh, 11 o'clock because I was it was just time for me to stop drinking I wasn't I was tired and the young boy that I had sort of taken under my wing Paul Fielder his name was uh, uh, I, he was probably about 18 at the time. He had never been away from home at Christmas time before in his life. He was from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. So he asked me to let him keep one of my balls, and I did. And he got plastered drunk. And But sometime around 1 or 2 in the morning on the 26th of, uh, of uh, December, the Viet Cong uh, actually slashed the throats of two guards. On the, we, we were in a fenced compound. Uh, they slashed the throats of the two guards we had on one of the gates and came in and dropped satchel charges in tents. And that was my bad experience. That when, As the satchel charges were going off, I remember old boy in my tent was named Vandermeer, and my thoughts, and I, I don't know what was, I think part of the fact that I was, was not, a, no, not afraid of death, didn't care about death in, in the main because of my loss of my wife. Uh, but I remember Vandermeer was standing on the floor screaming he was about to go home and he was going to die. And uh, I went up to him and slapped him and uh, did the whole uh, uh, John Wayne thing. And he came around and told him to get his steel pot on so we could. And we got on the line. And my concern was that I was getting my boots muddy. Not that I was going to get killed on the line, but I was getting my boots muddy and was going to have to reshine my boots. That's what I was concerned about, <laughs> to show you how out of reality I was. Mm -hmm. But the shaking thing was that during those satchel charges, the explosion of those satchel charges, uh, Paul Fielder, who was down at the tent where the drinking was going on, was hit by a satchel charge. We didn't know about it until much later. And uh, he never fully recovered. Uh, and he was a little boy, a young boy that I had trained to actually provide him the whiskey. So I felt, always felt some, mm -hmm. some guilt about that. Uh, mm -hmm. When he got out of the Army, about four years later, 
I went out in Hasbury to see him, and I, his mother, who was his mother, had him at a at a late age, and so she looked like his act like looked like an act like his grandmother. Uh, he was about 27 at this time when I went out there to see him, and uh, she must have been in her mid 50s. That was old for me at that time, <laughs> but no, she was in her 60s. I mean, but in any case, she said, "Now who are you?" I said, "I'm Ollie Neal." She said. She went and got the package that I sent Paul's clothing home. And she said, this is your, your name on here? She said, I kept this if I ever saw you. I said, yeah, that's my name. I'm Ollie Neal. And she said, I appreciate you for sending Paul's stuff home. She said, Paul is in there, but he drinks too much. And uh, she said, he starts off early in the morning. He was drinking the kind of whiskey I taught him to drink, which was granddad under proof at the time. And so I felt even greater guilt. And Paul died a couple of years later. He did mm-hmm. actually alcohol poisoning and mm-hmm. From his injuries, so mm-hmm. that was my Vietnam experience. I mean, it was not. I only stayed over there for until uh, February of uh, 66, uh, because my two years ended, and I was offered a promotion if I would stay. But I wasn't you're ready offered. to come home. I was ready to come home. And, yeah. and what did you do when you came home? I came back to the post office, but I only stayed at the post office a short working in Chicago. Only stayed there a short while and got it. And I started telling myself, "You really got to do something with your life. You got to do more than drink whiskey and run in the streets." And so I, my, I had two and a half years of college in chemistry, and I was registered in college for, in, at the University of Illinois Chicago Circle at that time. Uh, so I looked for a job in working in chemistry, and I got a job at the Glidden Company. Uh, they made chemical coatings, and uh, and uh, Glidden uh, uh, gave me a job in their uh, quality control lab, but said if I proved myself capable, they would move me to research and development. And they did that, and so... In research and development, I had the... Is, is that when you got the idea to become a chemist? Uh, that's what I... Yes, that was my notion at that time. I was going to be a chemist. Uh, uh, and I had a chance to develop colors, work with people developing colors. And for those of you who are old enough to remember the color that was popular in the late 60s called Golden Harvest, a harvest gold, I created that color. Now, I was it was not... My name was not written on it, but Gene Strang, who was my section chief, uh, name was written on so it. But the, I cr- the color that they put on the appliances? On the refrigerators, yeah. Oh. Primarily the refrigerators. That was a yellow in the middle and then a kind of a dark or brownish yellow around the edge. And we called it Harvest Gold. Uh, that was a color I created. I kept the... I and kept so the, you got rich from the royalties for that, that right? <laughs> no, no. I was a uh, Gene. <laughs> it was listed, created by the uh, that department, my, the appliance division, Gene Strang, uh, director. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, no, I didn't get. But I, once, I always once I, again, you didn't get credit where credit was. Well, I didn't deserve it. I, <laughs> I, I, but I kept the formula for a long time. I don't know. I think I may have given it to my daughter. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so and and but I still was doing. I actually got uh, flunked out of a uh, University of Illinois Chicago Circle. Uh, and uh, my brother uh, came to Chicago. He graduated from college in uh, in uh, May of '67. Uh, and I'm still working at Glidden. He come up to Chicago. I decide I'm going to try to stay there long enough to teach him how to the ropes in the big city. And the ropes for me, of course, was drinking and staying up all night and running the streets. And uh, but he came and he was teaching at a little at a high school called Finger High School. And I was trying to, I was we would do our practice was to be out as many nights as you could stand it. And then on on Saturday nights you were out until the morning. And then you played we played basketball on Sunday mornings uh, to try to stay in some shape and. Then Sunday evening, we got too tired. We went went back to my apartment and had a crap game. Uh, <laughs> that was a that was a life. And 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 after Rowan had been there a few months, I just felt bad. I was teaching him, getting him in the same tradition I was in, which was going nowhere. And so I was discussing with him. This is like in January of uh, 1968. I was discussing with my brother Rowan why he needed to do. Something. He needed to perhaps get away from me and do something different. He said, "Well, why don't you do something different?" I said, "Cause I don't have a college degree." He said, and so his friend, old boy named James Richards, who is graduated from uh, Lane College with him, uh, him and Richards, they said they could get me in, in Lane immediately. Well, it was kind of like a joke then to me. So I said, well, if you can get me in, if you can get me in college, I'll, I'll go. So they called the president of the college that Sunday night and the, and the, uh, and the uh, registrar that Sunday night and convinced them that I was a good prospect and that she let me in school. He's a Vietnam veteran. And so I gave notice that Monday morning, the next morning at work at Glidden, that I was going to be leaving, going back to college. And Lane is in uh, Illinois. Lane's in Jackson, Tennessee. In, in Tennessee. Yes. Okay. And so I, so in two weeks I was down the Lane in Jackson, Tennessee, and I probably had to. My baby brother was in school at University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. I guess it was still uh, AM and N then. Uh, and uh, my brother Rowan, who was between my baby brother and me, 
he said, I'm going to be the dad in this situation. Y'all, y'all send me your grades. <laughs> and so we had a little competition going, and I probably had the best college uh, academic period of my life was at Lane when I was competing with my baby brother uh, at uh, AM and N over grades, and you, we both got A's and B's. Nothing but A's and B's. You had motivation. Yes, then, didn't you? yes, 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 Excellent. yes. Amazing what a little motivation. Was Absolutely, right. yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And and then you got your degree from Lane. I didn't get my degree from Lane. Yeah. I got I got involved in some uh, challenging in administration at Lane and got put out of Lane. About a month and a half before I was supposed to graduate. Did, did you revert to being a bad boy again? I, I couldn't help it. I just, I just, it was, <laughs> it was in me. I don't. I got. I didn't intend to this time. I really had. Uh, the kids were at Lane, and I was about twenty-seven. And the kids at Lane were upset because of uh, that was the the the, the, the 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 very conservative school administration didn't do the things that the that black kids were doing all across the country. They didn't allow the kids to wear—girls could not wear afros. They had to have their hair straightened. Uh, girls couldn't wear pants. Uh, all that. Boys had to wear ties uh, uh, on a—well, they had to wear, wear ties every Wednesday. Uh, and there were other kind of restrictions. And so the boys were challenged—I mean, the kids were challenged administration. I was—there was a girl who was about—I was about 27. This girl was about 22. Uh, so she was older than most of the kids. But she was with them a little bit, and she said, Ollie, you ought to help them. You've had this experience. I know what you... So I said, I ain't getting into that stuff. I'm going to get me a degree. I can't really get me a degree. And so anyway, she talked me in, and girls You're always... drawn back yes, into yes, your yes, sit-in yes. days. Huh? Yes, yes, yes. And and so my game was to just put on my tie and show the appropriate respect, for because I was old enough to know that you show appropriate respect for people, and usually they're less than some. So I went to the president to represent this group, and the president decided I was the one who was leading all this stuff. And so then I got in the middle of it and got put out. And uh, didn't get my degree. This is like in April when I got put out, and I was scheduled to graduate the last of May. Oh, no. And uh, my plan was at that time, you're talking about being a chemist, my plan was to get my degree in chemistry from Lane and to go on up at, uh, go on to UT and go to work at, uh, at uh, up there at, uh, what was that nuclear facility in? Uh, Oak Ridge. Oak Ridge. Yeah. That was my whole game was to, was to go to Oak Ridge and eventually get a Ph.D. and be Dr. Neal. Uh, in chemistry, with a PhD in chemistry, didn't quite make it. Uh, got put out of lane, came back to Memphis, went to work for a little poverty program called Map South. Uh, they were working with the St. Jude Children's Research Research Hospital, and we were doing stuff to uh, work with uh, pregnant lactating mothers. And that program was sort of uh, fledgling, uh, flagging along. It was having difficulty, and I went in and was able to get it off and running, and got it up to snuff where it's supposed to be, and met Don Pinkle, who was Dr. Don Pinkle was at first director of St. Jude Research Hospital. You're listening to Radio Cows on KABF 88.3 in Little Rock. Are we leading up to the Lee County Cooperative Clinic? Yes, yes, we're coming right into that. Mm -hmm. And Donald Pinkle was kind of a superstar uh, physician at the time. He's Catholic, had about 10 or 12 children. But he introduced me to Danny Thomas, who was a St. Jude's patron saint. And while I was doing this, it was getting a little published and these these young women who were VISTA volunteers at the same time were doing some stuff in, in East Arkansas trying to put together a health center, which I didn't know much about. My daddy said there were vision workers there. I couldn't get him to say the vision. word VISTA. He called them vision, and that's what he called them till he died. He never called them VISTA. They were always vision workers. But in any case, uh, they heard about what was some of that because they were doing research all the yeah, time. Yeah, the VISTA people were, they were volunteers. Volunteers in service to America, they were called. Mm-hmm. And that was a, that was a, created in 1968. 69, a Vista, Vista Health Advocate. It's a federal government program. Yes, yeah. yes through the uh, Office of Economic Opportunity, it was called. Uh, OEO. And, uh, yeah, OEO. And uh, so these volunteers, two of them, uh, had been signed, came to Mariana in July of 1969. 68, I'm sorry, 68, because they were there two years. July of 1968, and they put together this country. They first started to put together a health program that was going to cover all East Arkansas. And folk who they were submitting, budget, submitting grants to said, now you can't, you can't pull this off. You don't have enough going. So they finally brought it down to this one county. And uh, I learned about this sometimes maybe in October of 1969 because my daddy told me something about it. And then these girls came to see me. Uh, I call them girls. They were younger than I was. I was about 20. I was about 28. And they were somewhere in the area of 22, 23. Uh, one of them is a young lady that's helping to do my biography now, uh, uh, Jan Reed and Kareen Cass. And uh, Kareen was a nurse, but Jan was a, had a degree in English, if I remember correctly. Uh, 
uh, uh, but she was she had great skills at putting things together. Mm-hmm. And they came and asked me, would I be interested in coming to Mariana and working? I said, well, you know, I'd be interested. My dad is there. My mama, mama died in 68. And dad is there now a year later, and he's in bad shape because he, he was 16 years older than mama, and he always thought mama would die, would live longer than he would. And so he was just, I said, so I'm going over there every week now uh, just to see how you're doing. Uh, but yeah, I'd be interested. And so anyway, they we started playing along those lines. They incorporated Lee County Cooperative Clinic in October of 69 and applied for a little piece of money. They got approval for a grant in January uh, of $138,000. Uh, that was the first budget for the Lee County Cooperative Clinic starting in 1970. And uh, the board uh, that they had created, the community board had created, uh, interviewed me along with some other people. And there were board members who said, and this is gets back, just on to the thing I'm talking about, people helping me when they didn't need to. The board members, some of the board members said in the, after following the interview, said, well, we really can't hire him. He's a troublemaker. He got put out of Lane College up there. He was in all that trouble over there in Memphis. We really don't need no troublemaker. Our relationship with our people here is just too, too shaky. We don't need. And one of the women on the board, an older lady named Willie Mae Collier, said, uh, and she was not a, you know, she was, she was just a regular member of that community, but she was very well respected big in the Eastern Star, uh, big in a church group. Uh, she said, well, I know his grandfather. I know he's, we need to give him a chance. Let's hire him. And the folk followed, and that's how I got hired. If Miss Collier hadn't said that, there's no way they would have brought this troublemaker uh, to Mariana to start that new health, that little fledgling health center. Mm-hmm. So that's how, I, that's how we got started there. And I initially thought that we'd probably do a good fight to try to do something there. Uh, and it would probably last a couple of years, and I'd gone, and I'd, st- I'd try to figure out something to do as long as Dad was living, and I'd gone back to Chicago. So, so you were hired to run the clinic? I was hired to run the clinic in, mm-hmm. in, uh, 19, in January, February of 1970, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, we had a budget of $138,000. T- I'm sorry, a budget of $38,000, mm-hmm. $39,000, a budget of $39,000, mm-hmm. and we had a bunch of Vista volunteers doing most of the work, and I was administrator. W- was this uh, maybe your first uh, venture into local politics uh, during that time? Probably, yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. yes. Because when we were running the clinic, what we tried to do, we recognized that uh, that if the, these board members who were, who were running the clinic, if they could get on top of running the clinic and understand the finances and all of that, they could probably do the same thing with the government. And uh, that's what we, that was a part of what the teaching was. And I think Vista Sala have planted that too now. So you had kind of a larger goal there. You Absolutely. were looking to get some of the members of the black community uh, more educated yes. in these matters so that they could uh, participate in some of the uh, other institutions and larger affairs of yes. the community. Yes, mm-hmm. and I think that proved itself to be very true. The first year in 1970, in the election at that time, the primaries, I think, occurred in July, August. We didn't have these primaries like we have now in May uh, and even earlier one year. I think we had in March. Uh, but in any case, we had uh, uh, we took over the Republican Party. And the reason why we did that was fairly simple. We were not, we were not basically Republican. But, but Rockefeller was the governor. Went to and he was our man. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a Republican. And the Republican Party in Lee County was semi-dormant. And the parties had, each, each of the counties, the two main parties in each county had a right to select one person to serve on the, board, uh, the election commission. And so those, and it, those three commissioners, the two parties, uh, the, the dominant party had two people, and the uh, minority party had one person. So we had one person on that commission, uh, but each party could select at least one judge and one clerk at every polling place. And we had been a little bit upset because of the way the polling had been treated, so... So we were able to put in our own judge and clerk at every polling place in the county, and that was pr- pretty pronounced. Mm-hmm. And we ran a man for county judge that year named Thomas Ishmael, and we thought, and still think today, that Thomas Ishmael probably got more votes, but the uh, but the, the the party control, I mean, the election control mechanisms <laughs> managed to manipulate a little bit. We had the largest turnout in Lee County. Either before or since, there's never been that large a turnout except for the, the largest turnout ever in Lee County before or since was in 1970. That was a portion of an interview with Ollie Neal Jr. on Primary Sources. To hear more of the interview with Judge Neal, please visit the Primary Sources podcast at cals.org slash podcasts.
This Month in Arkansas History On December 16, 1811, the natural disaster that became known as the New Madrid Earthquakes of 1811 and 1812 began. Centered near New Madrid, Missouri, the earthquake sent shocks for hundreds of miles throughout northeast Arkansas, western Tennessee, and southeast Missouri. An even larger disturbance occurred on January 23rd, with aftershocks lasting until February 4th. Another violent quake occurred on February 7th. Arkansas suffered the greatest amount of damage, but loss of life was minimal because the area affected was sparsely populated. The New Madrid earthquakes of 1811 to 1812 are considered the most violent series of earthquakes in the history of the continental U.S., and scientists predict that another large earthquake is due that could inflict great damage to Arkansas as well as up to half the nation. Good afternoon and thanks for joining us. I'm Rod Lorenzen with the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies and today we're talking books with Dr. Nancy Hendricks. The Butler Center has just published her new book, Notable Women of Arkansas, From Hattie to Hillary, 100 Names to Know. Dr. Hendricks is an award-winning author whose previous book, Hattie Carraway, An Arkansas Legacy, offers a fresh look at the first woman elected to the United States Senate. Nancy, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Oh, Rod, thank you so much for allowing me to be here. It's, it's a true honor. And I know you're going to hear this a lot today, but I just want to thank you and Butler Center Press so much for your support, for your encouragement, for publishing this book about 100 women who I consider my new best friends. Well, that's great. Well, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be interested in Arkansas history. Well, it's hard not to be interested in Arkansas history. If you've lived here for a while, I've been blessed to uh, both go to school in Arkansas and to teach at Arkansas schools. Uh, Certainly, I worked on my doctorate at the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville, go Hogs, and worked in their special uh, archives, a lot of the research that I was able to do for the Hattie Carraway book. And it seems like if you pull a thread in one place, it just pulls so many other interesting ideas. And so... I was also blessed to be able to work as a contributor for the Encyclopedia of Arkansas, and I know that you here at the Butler Center are extremely familiar with that, and was asked to write entries on a number of Arkansas women, and the research on them and their stories were just so fascinating that the idea for this book took hold, and I thought, gosh, I'm, I'm learning some great stuff and having such a good time and getting to know so many wonderful people that it seemed like a great idea to be able to share it with the rest of the state. Um, before I go any further, you know, even on PBS where there are no commercials, you do have to sit through Ralph Lauren and Viking River Cruises before you can watch Downton Abbey. Well, this is going to be a commercial because it would be wonderful and it would be a live stream for me um, if this book regardless of the fact that I perpetrated it. But if this book could find its way to every school in Arkansas, every library in Arkansas, and um, and, and every home bookshelf, I, I hope that teachers and librarians and parents will consider this because the stories are so inspiring and interesting. And uh, we, I just learned so much. And every now and then, Having extremely lowbrow tastes, I'll be watching TV and I'll be watching Columbo or something like that. And there's one of the people that I profiled in this book, and it was like seeing a friend on TV. And so it was just um, just such a blessing to work on. And I, I do hope that parents and teachers and librarians will uh, will consider it. Great. In putting together this book, Notable Women of Arkansas, was it difficult to keep the list to just 100 entries? And what criteria did you use in making the list? Absolutely. I have a whole stack of preliminary lists at home uh, that really started uh, probably the day after you and I agreed uh, to embark on the project. And they were culled down from maybe 300 to 200 to 150 to 100. And we decided, uh, first of all, to settle on the 100 because that's such a great round number. But the criterion that we used on this were Arkansas women who made their mark not only on the state but also on the national stage. And the expression that I I like to use is women who are as well-known in Fort Worth as Fort Smith. 
So it was very difficult to have to cull it down from women who have made such a tremendous contribution to the state. And uh, I'm thinking of uh, uh, former Secretary of State Sharon Priest and former State Treasurer Jimmy Lou Fisher and uh, uh, Veda Shedd up at Mountain Home. And I'm hoping, and this is a hint, if there's a volume two, that we can concentrate on wonderful women who have made their mark on the state, including uh, our state's Poets Laureate. But the criterion that we used for this book was women who made their mark uh, on the national stage. We did try to mix it up uh, to be representative of the state's diversity. And uh, other than other than gender, every other demographic uh, is well represented, uh, certainly ethnically, uh, living and dead, past and present, young and not so young, but really reflecting the, the wonderful diversity of our state. Nancy, can you tell us briefly about some of the women who are included in your book? Uh, as I said, they, they run the gamut. Uh, sh- show business, which, of course, is my own uh, personal passion, but uh, uh, athletics, civil rights, the literary world, the arts, the business world. We have, have people who have made their mark in uh, uh, ecclesiastical circles, and quite often the women who were profiled in the book ended up being the first woman to do such and such on a national scale. We have in Arkansas the first woman who was named to the board of the the National Science Foundation, and she had gone to a school uh, here in Arkansas in a town of less than 200 people, and that's the town that had less than 200 people, not the school. The school had neither chemistry courses nor a chem lab, and she rose to be probably the leading, one of the leading chemists in the nation across all demographics, but certainly the highest ranking uh, female. Uh, We have have opera singers from our state, including one who suffered a tremendous bit of personal misfortune and uh, uh, moved to Arkansas later in life to Hot Springs uh, for its therapeutic waters, ended up becoming a huge part of the Arkansas cultural community and had a, an Academy Award-winning film uh, made about her life. And so we have women that just absolutely cross the, uh, the lines of every, again, every demographic, every profession you can think of. And so many of them were the first woman to do such and such. We have a woman from Arkansas here who was um, the only one of TV lawyer Perry Mason's clients to be convicted. So you have to read the book to find out uh, who that is. But we do have, uh, uh, along with the stories in the book, we have for teachers especially some sample lesson plans and activities for students. We have a quiz for people who uh, are just, uh, you know, quizaholics and love things like Trivial Pursuit. Which Arkansas woman, uh, you know, for example, faced off against the creature from the Black Lagoon? So hopefully there's something for everyone. It's the kind of book that you can pick up and read an entry or two, put it down, and then pick it back up again and find something just just interesting and, and fascinating. Out of the 100 women listed in your book, do you have a personal favorite? That's dangerous territory because, again, I, I do feel that I have 100 new best friends here, including the dead ones. Uh, but it would it would certainly be remiss of me not to mention Hattie Carraway because that's my alter ego. And as you know, I uh, perpetrate a little uh, Hattie Carraway program around the state in character as Hattie. But it would be um, just just I, I just could not answer a question like that without mentioning Hattie being the nation's first woman to be elected to the United States Senate, having no mentors, having really uh, very few friends in the Senate, running a historic campaign in 1932 that was covered nationally and internationally and making so many contributions not only to our state, but to our nation that have been felt by thousands of people, even though um, very few of them would associate her with that. There are, are uh, uh, people that I would mention, um, a, an actress who actually I have admired her work for a, a great deal of time, and in contacting the 100 people or their estates or their agents to attempt to get photos for the book, because, again, no, no ethical publisher like yourself or no ethical author would, would publish photos without permission. 
but in making contact with them personally to try and get uh, a permission to use their photos. Uh, a wonderful actress named Lee Purcell. You may not recognize the name, but you will definitely recognize the face. She has like, you know, a thousand credits on everything from the Rockford Files to the Waltons. And we've sort of gotten to know each other. It turns out that my uncle was in a business partner of her stepfather, and uh, my grandfather knew her grandfather, and really do feel that I've made a friend in Lee Purcell. So uh, along with Hattie, I would have to mention Lee, but there are just so many others who were so gracious, and uh, I, 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 I would have to count them among my favorite, too. So I guess it's a, a hundred-way tie for my favorite entry. Nancy, thanks so much for being with us today. Again, we're talking with Dr. Nancy Hendricks about her new book, Notable Women of Arkansas, From Hattie to Hillary, 100 Names to Know, just published by Butler Center Books, the publishing division here at the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies. The Butler Center has published more than 50 great books on Arkansas and regional history. For more information on all of our books, please visit www.butlercenter.org. For Radio Cows, I'm Rod Lorenzo. This is KABF in Little Rock, 88.3, the voice of the people in central Arkansas. Butler Center project on race relations in Arkansas, Willie Booker Jr. of Hamburg was interviewed by Jawan Johnson. His story touches on the many aspects of growing up as an African American in Arkansas. Here are some portions of the interview which can be found in our website, arstudies.org. His father rented farmland until he could afford to buy his own land. This story about a landlord has a happy ending. We had, we had a situation, as I told you, we would usually rent land dad would pay maybe ten dollars an acre for the corn land fifteen dollars an acre something like that for the cotton land whatever it was but we rent from rent land from this white person and uh we basically grew cotton and corn and this this uh, person we rented from had a lot of hogs and uh his hog would get out and get in our corn field and dad would mr copeland uh, uh, your hogs eating up my corn. Where's well, my corn too, Booker? You know, mm-hmm. like that. So one morning, Dad got tired of him. He got a shotgun, went out there, and he killed ten or twelve hogs. <laughs> and I, that scared me to death because yeah. this was gonna mean real, real trouble. Cause the, the land owner, he he stand out in his yard watching the shooting and all of this stuff, but he never been come down there. Mm-hmm. But after a while, the sheriff, kind of sheriff, showed up, and he passed on by our house and went on down to the brought to the land on his house and talked with him. Then when he came back, this is where I was expecting bad trouble. But mm-hmm. when he came back he wanted no book of can Mr. Copeland come down and get his get his hogs and so so he can dress them and they said they got water on now, they're getting ready for dressing. He told me, Yes, yeah, so that's what I wanted. I want them out of my feet. <laughs> and boy that that hell that that went real well with me. <laughs> Mr. Booker was drafted near the end of World War II, but his experience was not the traditional one. And I was late going in service. And my mother, I have a brother. And I sat my brother next to me is two years younger than I, and he went in service two years before I did. Okay. <clears throat> my mother told me that if I had gone at that time, that I wasn't coming back. So she prayed. She said she prayed me out of there. So after. Two years past my time, and I was already rich, they called me. And of course, I went. I was at Philander Smith College at the time. And um, when I got my orders, we, we went to a recruitment office, whatever it was, uh, on Fifth Street there in, in Little Rock, on Fifth Street, where that office was. And it was 58, 58 of us, all black. And of course, back there, you know, the armed forces were segregated. Mm-hmm. And um, there's 58 of us, and they got us signing us up and to go to Bainbridge, Maryland. Mm-hmm. And this is where they train cooks 
how to make up beds and how to shine boots and how to take care of officers. Yes. 57 signed up. I refused. I just would not. Would not do it. So they took me out to, to Camp Robinson. And I stayed. Wouldn't let him go back to school. I was there for Atlanta. Wouldn't mm -hmm. let him go back to school. I went out to Cape. I stayed out there for a couple of days, whatever. And then they got me back up there, and then they sent me to Great Lakes mm -hmm. as a seaman okay. you know, for, for training as a seaman. Mm -hmm. And of course, this was quite hard for black to be a seaman. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was hard to find. It was hard to find a place for me until uh, we had to do a little research on it. But during during that time, uh, after I got out of boot training. And President Truman was, Truman was president, and this is when he desegregated the armed forces. And that was really the first time I had in the duty. Mm -hmm. So what so, was the change? Or what, what did you notice that was different after it was desegregated? Oh, well, well, because I had, I had finished high school, and I had a little, like, almost a semester of college training. So after it was desegregated, then they wanted to go to officer school. But I didn't. I didn't want to go. I didn't even want to go in service because my friend was was coming back then, mm -hmm. and my first year in service, my job was discharging people that was coming out of service on points. Back there, you you had so many points, then you could get out after mm -hmm. the war in Europe and that war in Japan was over. And that was my first job for a year. Was discharging. I was discharging my friends, and I'm just getting in. And so I didn't want them. No career. I didn't want to learn how to do anything but go back home. <laughs> he talked about his first job managing a farm that was owned by an African-American family near Auburn, Arkansas. When I finished college, I took a job down at Auburn, Arkansas. This is in Jackson County, close to Newport, on a 17,000-acre farm that's owned by black people. Mm -hmm. And the father passed away. And... Uh, they hired me to take care of the farm, mm -hmm. and uh, I worked there. Well, the father hadn't passed away then, but he was real old. But I worked there for my first four or five years out of college. Yeah. And what were their names? What was the name Pick of Pick and name? Black. It's the Pick and Black Farm. Pick and P-I-C-K-I-N-S. Uh -huh. Blacks Plantation at Auburn, Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And, and African-Americans owned this? Yeah, black people owned this. Yeah, 17,000 acres. How did they obtain the land? The, the father, the father, anytime, the old man, anytime land became available for auction, he would, he would buy. The way he got started was some, uh, I guess you would call them spectators, speculators, or whatever. Mm -hmm. They'd come down from Chicago and places like that. And uh, they were lumber, lumber people, mm -hmm. and they would uh, buy up thousands of acres of land and cut the timber off of it, and then they didn't want to pay the taxes on it. Mm -hmm. So they would let him pay the taxes on it, and he would he would own it. They didn't they had no interest in the land, and and then he he got a lot of it like that. And then whenever a farm came up for auction, nobody bid on it because he was going to buy. It. Mm -hmm. Now it might have a big beautiful farmhouse on and all that. He didn't even count that because they were going to be burnt. Somebody was going to burn it down. Mm -hmm. But he had the land. And when I went there to work for him, he had 17,000 acres. Wow. And, that's, and of course, I worked about 12,000 acres and the other was, was uh, rented out to, to, to farmers around. There. But all of the cotton and soybeans and rice came to, that, to, to, to my place. Mm -hmm. So what did you actually, what did you do as an agent? What were your duties, At, your job duties? Was just to manage the farm. See, they no. got the crop in mm -hmm. and and we had 40 tractors for uh, the part that, that we worked. And then uh, had to have to look after the, the renters having fertilizer, seed, whatever, and take care of the gin. I didn't, I mean, to see after the gin, the, the, the grain dryers. You can hear the full interview with Willie Booker Jr. as well as many others like it at arstudies.org.
the website that lets you search all of our Butler Center manuscripts and digital collections. This month in Arkansas history. On December 3, 1941, Terrence Roberts, one of the Little Rock Nine who desegregated Central High School in 1957, was born. On May 17, 1979, Roberts was able to meet Orville Faubus face-to-face on ABC's Good Morning America. He said, I really feel it was a violation of public trust to practice your own personal policies of racism in that position. You endangered not only my life, but the lives of hundreds of other people, both black and white. It's time for Chewing the Fat with Rex and Paul, a regular feature on Radio Cows. That's Rex Nelson, who's head of corporate communications for Simmons Bank and who writes the food blog Southern Fried, and Paul Austin, who's executive director of the Arkansas Humanities Council, talking about Arkansas food, festivals, and folks. This week on Chewing the Fat with Rex and Paul, Rex is out of town, so Paul is having a conversation with Jan Austin, his patient spouse, whom Paul often mentions in the broadcast. Here they pick up a discussion of Jan's hometown of Helena. Well, we don't get to Helena as much as we used to. No, I still have a couple of aunts Aunts there, and and I spoke with Aunt Julia recently, and she's, well, 87 now. Aunt Julia Shinnip. Aunt Julia Shinnip. And you've got two uncles and, and an aunt, yeah. Aunt Tooley. Aunt Tooley and Uncle Billy. Yeah, and Uncle Ori and, and Frankie. Uncle Frankie. Yeah, yeah, so there's still a few folks down so there. So we've still got a hell of a connection. Yes, definitely, definitely. We have a few friends there. Paula Hickey Oliver is there. Yes. She was here recently. Yeah, she works at the Delta Culture Center. Yes, she you? does. Yeah. Her sister Jan was here for some surgery. We had the opportunity to meet. Hadn't seen each other since grade school. I'll be darned. Yeah. Well, neither of us has changed. We went to the uh, Goodwin reunion. Rex and I talked about that a little bit, but that was a fun experience seeing all the relatives, some which I'd never met before. I didn't remember them. Uh, Had good food, though. Oh, we had a wonderful lunch. Really good. We had a wonderful lunch. Sherry June vinegar pie was the hit, as far as I was concerned. Who knew vinegar pie could be good? I still don't know that. I've never had it. You didn't try any of it? The name is is off-putting. It's wonderful. It's like lemon pie. It's spectacular. Well, it's eggs and sugar with a little bit of vinegar. And it I tastes really like, like pecan pie. Pecan pie is my specialty. Yes, it is. And that and mincemeat. I make yes, a mincemeat Yes, I love mincemeat. Now, I like pies to be dense, and I don't want them masqueraded as something else. Don't call it vinegar if, you know. If it's not vinegar. If it's not vinegar. And it yeah. just sounds like, well, who would? I don't know. But I like pecan pie and I like mince. I don't like chocolate pie, which, which is, is weird. Very weird. You know, the secret to pecan pie is butter, a lot of butter. Well, secret to life is butter. It is butter. A lot butter. of butter. Butter's good. Butter is very good. That's we like the, butter. That's why the Lord gave it's us one churns. of the food groups, I believe. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. Meat, vegetables, and butter. And butter. Yeah. Uh, and bread. Bread's good. Uh-huh. Well, the, uh, at the Goodwin reunion, we had black, fresh blackberry cobbler, which was good. Yes. But I thought it was weird that the, chi- the livers I bought at the Quick Stop were the... Like head of the park. They fell on those, didn't yeah. they? They liked them. Yeah, very weird. But that was fine. Yeah. No one else brought them, so they were hit. Well, um, I remember uh, when I took you to Imboden pre-marriage, uh, that was a big deal. Cause I hadn't brought a lot of friends, shall we say, girlfriends. To I believe I was told I was probably one of the first maybe that you the brought first around. Yeah. yeah, could be. They always found you to be a bit secretive in that regard. Well, I didn't want them in my business. That was kind of the what I was told. Small town. You've got yeah. to be careful about you that. You have to be careful. So I married a foreigner. Well, yeah. <laughs> From Helena. Someone commented, uh, they, for some reason, thought you and I both have accents. And I said, well, maybe we do. We don't have the same kind of accent. No, it's very different. Yeah. You have a southern drawl. I have yeah. a hillbilly twang. Mm-hmm. So. It's very different, yeah. and, and you can't really put them in the same box. It doesn't work. Of course, I maintain, I'm joking, of course, Well, yeah. that there's a intellectual difference between the Delta and Hills. We are far superior than That's Delta. not what I meant. Oh, okay. <laughs> and my theory is that y'all have suffered generations of massive oh, mosquito biting. Now, this I don't doubt. That reduces you. You don't have as much blood as we do in the well, Hills. 
So blood fl- flow to the brain, and the result is you think uh, that's what it problematic. Is. Yeah, I've never thought of it that way, but <laughs> I can understand where you get that. And the mosquitoes are worse than awful. They carry guns. Yeah, it's serious. Terrible. Mosquitoes. But you know, you cross the Black River into the bottoms of Lawrence County, and they're just just horrible. It's just awful. You know, Aunt Vera Johnson. By the way, Aunt Vera Johnson, who lives in Porsche, still she's, I believe she's ninety-five, still doing well, still kicking, yeah, still doing good. Uh, She used to make sweet corn. Oh yeah. Oh my God! Remember that? It was just spectacular. And and Uncle Jewel. Well, she grew a yard full of her. Her husband, Uncle Jewel Johnson, would. She and uh, Jewel and the mosquitoes. They had a huge big garden. It was right on the. Uh, the banks of the Porsche Bay, mm-hmm. which is an old oxbow lake of the Black River, and just rich, loamy soil. And he would do half acre of this corn, I guess. It was it was a lot. And it was just, I've never, I've never been able to, I've never tasted corn that good, and I've never been able to really duplicate it. And I'd ask, well, you just put some butter and sugar in it, cook it up. And there's got to be a better tri- trick to it than that. You know what else she did really well? What? You know, the chocolate, it's not Reese's, but it's its chocolate with peanut butter, and, and she made that candy. And we stopped by one Thanksgiving or Christmas, and we visited a while, as we would do, and she had that on the table, and I just thought, oh, boy, <laughs> it was wonderful. And I remember she... I made such a deal over it. I think I took half of it home, truth be told. But it was wonderful. She's very good at making candy. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a, a generational thing in a way. I don't think, and I could be wrong, of course, but I don't think that there are as many of us now who actually no, make do candy. That. You know, Ann Vera retired from the uh, shirt factory. I think it was a shirt factory on Ridge. She was United Garmers Workers. Yes. Union. Yes. And a, and a staunch union. Mm-hmm. Believed in the mm-hmm. union and had great loyalty to the union. And she had a good living, and, and it, it went well living. for her there. She was very much She and Uncle Jewel traveled supportive. quite a bit, and they collected little plates, the uh-huh. state plates. Uh-huh. But I've seen never seen, seen this, uh, but she's told me about it. She's evidently kept a diary. Of every day of every, every day year. For, and she goes back and looks at. And writes it on the same page, yes. I think. So this is Tuesday of 38, 1938, And I want those so I want those so much. We've got to. I have to figure out a way. Other daughter, than, well, I may just Becky. ask her if I can have them, and I think something should be done with them. I think they're no just going to be it. magnificent. Yeah, I remember her telling the story that. So she's younger than my dad, and um, none of the older siblings, the Austin siblings, I think I'm going to get this right, uh, had gone on to school past the eighth grade. They all lived at Old Walnut Ridge, which is between Walnut Ridge and Portia. The Sand Hills, they call it. So everybody else got through the eighth grade and then off to work. And so Aunt Vera wanted to go to high school in Walnut Ridge, but it was going to cost, mm-hmm. I think, $10 a year or something. A lot. And uh, my grandfather, her father, Papa Wiley Austin, uh, just couldn't afford that. So my dad had a job, and he paid her $10 to go to uh, school at Walnut Ridge, which is a very cool thing. Yeah. You know, $10 is a big deal. That's then. a big deal. That's yeah. a lot. And she bought, he bought her class ring for her, and she still got the class ring. So that was cool. But she's the only one of the girls and boys, the only Austin sibling left. Yeah. You know, but she's doing very good. Yeah, though. doing yeah. well. Yeah. Doing very well. But the mosquitoes are still bad in Portia. Yes, that won't change. It's never ending. That won't change. You know, I was, my grandfather, my mother's father, W.S. Sawyers, had, a, had the dairy where they were all raised at, called Whitaker, but it was between Hoxie and Sedgwick. And when his kids, my mother and and her brother and sister, became old enough to start going to high school, while they were in the Hoxie school district, Grandpa wanted them to go to Walnut Ridge. So they all went to school at, uh, at Walnut Ridge. And Grandpa had the contract to provide the milk for the school. So he would take that every morning, and that's how they would ride to school. Cool. Yeah. So anyway... Lawrence County history, Jan. Well, of course, and we you know we, Lawrence County is the mother of counties. Well, <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, yes, it is. As a matter of fact, yeah. we have a picture of your grandfather in front of a truck. He yeah. ran the farm. He ran the farm and at, the dairy at, at, at Arkansas State Arkansas College State College. Yes. Then, and yeah. there's a truck, and he's in front of it. And I believe it has the it has ASU or Arkansas State Arkansas or, State know, College College in, on the truck in front of it. We. 
And that where that was taken is where we went to the concert a couple of months ago to see Dwight Yoakam well, at the Convocation Center. A couple of months ago. Last month. Yeah, it was great, though, wasn't it? Great. I didn't realize that, though, that that was the dairy was there. The barn was there and the homes were there. Wow. There was a row of about six homes, nice brick homes that staff lived in. I remember those. Yeah. I remember those because we visited a faculty member. Did we not? Who lived in one of them? Well, that was different. Those were even newer. Oh, those were already gone by then. Uh, the K, it was part of the K edition, K's oh. edition. Okay. Which those so are all that... gone except Mr. K's, hey, who was the first president mm-hmm. or one of the early important presidents. Mm-hmm. So they've kept that and are going to turn it into uh, a welcome center or something yeah. like that. I think they're actually recreating uh, Governor Beebe's office, sort of like the wow. Oval Office. <laughs> well, that'd be nice. It'll be fantastic. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> You're listening to Chewing the Fat with Rex and Paul on Radio Cows. This week, Rex is out of town, so Paul continues a conversation with Jan Austin, his patient spouse, about Arkansas State University in Jonesboro. Anyway, that that all was at Jonesboro, so, you know, the connection of ASU, we were just raised, that's where we are going to go to school. That was the coolest place of all. Well, and it was. It was. And still is, I guess. As a matter of the fact, Harvard of we Arkansas, I like the Harvard of Arkansas. Yes, you always informed Doesn't me look of like that. It. It, it was the Harvard of Arkansas, and I didn't understand that. I didn't realize. I took an exhibit up there a couple of years ago, and I talked. I called Ruth Hawkins telling her I was going to bring it up. And she said, but do you know how to get here? I said, yeah, I'll just turn down Car- drive down Caraway Road. I'll turn left it on Aggie Road and park in between the Ring Center and Wilson Hall. She said, none of that exists. Yeah. Can't drive down Caraway. Aggie Road doesn't exist. Ring Center's not there. I think Wilson Hall is still there. Interior driving is no longer what no it longer was. No longer available. Yeah. On you don't do that anymore on campuses. It's just too much. Which is pretty standard. Yeah, it yeah. is. It is. I remember one of our trips to Imboden when Josh was getting older, you know, young, not a teenager, but nine or 10 or something. And I remember him saying, because we would go and stay two, two, three days. Then, in fact, his early life, we went, we spent Christmas there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he's a little rock boy, and he at one time he said, "Good Lord, what did y'all do here?" <laughs> Lots. Well, we drove stuff. up and down the road, and swam in the river, swam in the river. Yeah, rode our bicycles to the fire tower. Yeah, to see if. Uh, the old gentleman who lived on the way was clothed. He often would be sitting on well, the porch. Yes. yes, I remember. Without clothing. You telling me about yeah. that. That was one of the stories that well, yeah. you and regaled right me with on our way to Imboden. And we'd ride to the fire tower, and Mr. Clements would let us climb the fire tower. Mm-hmm. You know, the last of the—my mother life. calls it the last of the Tom Sawyer generation. Well, she's probably right. We wouldn't let Josh walk to the no. neighborhood pool by himself. And I ran all over Helena, Arkansas yeah. as a kid. Bicycles, you know, just out. I remember coming home one day, and some man picked me up and carried me home. <laughs> he was building houses somewhere yeah. because I'd slipped in a ditch— and why I don't know why I was there, but I'd cut my foot, and he took me. I, well, no, I didn't go to the doctor. I've still got that little place on my foot. But we just ran all over town. Yeah. No worries. No worries. Except when they needed you to get in for supper now. You needed to get in and, and be at home when you were. No cell phones. No, 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 no. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. We'd have never had any fun. We would get up Saturday morning and not come back till dark. Uh-huh. That was the expectation. Yeah. Please stay away. <laughs> there was a water hose in the yard. Yeah. I mean, you know. Right. They wanted you to eat, and they wanted to make sure you were okay, but no, Josh wouldn't have no. been out Completely like different. that. Of course, so. we lived, uh, before we built the house on the river and the railroad tracks. Yeah, and the railroad We lived tracks. next door to the church. I mean, every time yes, there was even a hint of something happening, we were there. Yes, you did. Sunday, you know, twice on Sunday, prayer meeting on Wednesday night, and choir practice and WMU and Royal Ambassadors and just never ending. But that in school was the social life of the town. Yeah. I remember once when I was old enough to know better, um, someone had reported, because, you know, then people told, if you did something, they told. Of you course. Know, they would come to the store and I shall be Paul, blah, blah. Well, someone thought I'd been hot rodding. Well. And I remember my dad saying, my son. People have got their eye on you. Mm-hmm. They're paying attention. You mm-hmm. need to think about that. 
It's a lot of pressure right on the back. Well, and, if, uh, and, and, you know, folks weren't above correcting you. They were not above correcting you. Now, you know you're not supposed yeah. to be doing that. Yes, ma'am. Because you did Does your daddy know that you? Yeah, you did I know. was one of these. I never could cut school mm-hmm. because. Everybody knew. The school secretary, of the first, as soon as she left school, she went to the store mm-hmm. and got groceries. Shelby, where was Paul today? Is he sick? <laughs> Uh-oh. That happened once. Now, well, okay, well, can't do that anymore. That's not a good idea. But I wasn't one to cut anyway. I was more interested in my studies. Yes, I'm. I'm sure. For the most part, yeah. I'm sure, very much so. M. Bowden, Sloan Hendricks. Uh, I think when I was there, maybe the total student population was two fifty or something. Helena Central, I assume, was bigger than it that. It was bigger. Yes, yeah. yes. We had, we had more than one classroom per grade. Really? And oh yeah, I'm assuming that you probably <laughs> we, did not. We did not. But we had no. we had more than one classroom per yeah. grade. I think my graduating class was 26. Yeah, well ours would have been. I'm gonna say maybe 78. I don't know, but it, it was larger than that. that. Probably bigger than that. Yeah, yeah, it was larger. Yeah. Than yours. Well, Sloan Hendricks is a much larger school now. In fact, it used when it was uh, it it had a football team until 1951. And I've often wondered now that it's with consolidation that's happened. If their student enrollment is larger, they're no longer class B in athletics. They would look at that. I suspect but you know, it's more expensive. It. I shouldn't talk about all things political and financial, but it, it's it's more or expensive. sports for that matter. Or sports for that matter, yeah. because I know less than little, but it's very expensive comparatively. For football. And, you know, football is maybe growing out of favor with all well, the you know, physical danger and concussions there is and all that. that. I've always that. thought it was a shame we didn't have track and field at these little small schools. Because that's very affordable. Very affordable. And, you know, the hills and all of that, we could have been fantastic runners. I don't think it was what people actually thought of when they thought nope. about high school sports. Nope. It just didn't make. Didn't work. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, what else you want to talk about, Jen? Well, I don't know. Have you enjoyed this experience? I have had of course, a we miss Rex. Time. We do miss Rex. Yeah. You know, I remember we I went miss the... looking at the back of his head along with yours <laughs> in the back seat where I usually. One of our trips, I think we've been <laughs> two or three times. Rex has joined us to go to the races, which has been bundles of fun. Bundles of fun. Yes. We the last time we started, Rex and I with oysters. You have to get oysters, eat those. Then uh, this time was we went to the infield. It was open, so we had you had to get an Oakland burger, which they're yeah. famous, grilled and then slathered in barbecue sauce. You get that. Then you have to have uh, corned beef. You can't go to Oakland. Oh yeah, that's beef. my favorite. But then we added something this time. What did we add? We went to Rocky's across the street. We for did pizza. and had pizza. And it after was the wonderful. Fantastic pizza. We got there at exactly the right time. There was there were cords of people, yeah. but we managed to get in there yeah. and, and get on in. And it was wonderful. And as busy and crowded as they were and they were slammed, it was it was yeah. great pizza. We were late getting there, so we parked on the street somewhere. Yeah. yeah. But uh Got out in a timely fashion. I had always wanted to go to Rockies and never had. Now, what is your theory on on gambling with horses, Jan? Do you uh, check the breeding <laughs> records, the dam and the sire trainers? All of that, but breeder? actually, yeah. you know, what I do is I pick them out. Oh, I knew someone named Fury once. <laughs> Let me choose that one. Yeah. I choose them by the name. And, and I do as well as Do as well people. as I do, yeah. Yeah, and, and I don't. Spend near as much yeah. time ciphering, <laughs> as I refer to it, and, and, and I reading. I think one about of them that them. you won like twenty dollars on a two dollar win ticket had something about hill in it. You said, "Well, Josh is in Fayetteville. They call that the hill, so I'll pick yeah, that." Yeah, so one. I'll just pick that one. My and fear, worked, though, my fear though is that you push it too much. You need to let it flow like you look too hard for things. Yeah, because you, that's you not pointed a good that out. If, I, if I'm really, if it's a stretch. It, it grabs you. Not, yeah. If it doesn't move on, it. don't try to find it. I think you just want to save the $2 I'm going to throw away. Waste the $2 them, you're yeah. going to throw away. Or more, because you would more. want to bet more on it. I'm, I realize it's folly. I don't, you know, want to invest, but I'm cheap with it. <laughs> I'm real cheap. It's like I want to win lots bet. of money. Well, that's see, I don't challenge. even think that's going to happen. Yeah. So I just go with if I win, if I lose two, and end up somehow or another at the end of the day with twenty in a corned beef sandwich. It's a great day. Yeah, well, that is a good way to look at it. It is a great day. The thing I like about horse racing, as opposed to illicit gambling, is that you've already given them the money. Yes. So you've paid for that, and no matter what you get, even if it's 
a twelve dollar bet and you win three dollars. As far as I'm concerned, I won because I gave them twelve dollars and, and give me get three back. Something. And it is entertaining yeah. just yeah. being there. It's looking at the people and all their goings on. It's quite entertaining. It's, people watching is fantastic. Yes. That's chewing the fat with Rex and Paul, a regular feature on Radio Cows with Rex Nelson, head of corporate communications for Simmons Bank and the writer of the food blog Southern Fried. And Paul Austin, Executive Director of the Arkansas Humanities Council. Radio Cows is a production of the Central Arkansas Library System's Community Outreach Department, as well as its Arkansas History Department, the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies. For more information, please visit cows.org and butlercenter.org. Radio Cows was produced this week by Rod Lorenzen, John Miller, Brett Ratliff, Keeley Wooten, David Strickland, and Glenn Whaley. Voices by John Miller and Jasmine Joe. Engineering and editing by Michael Stotts and Anna Lancaster. Our production manager is Glenn Whaley. Our executive producers are Leanne Blackwell-Hoskin and David Strickland. For Radio Cows, I'm John Miller. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week, Friday at noon, here on KABF 88.3 Little Rock.